What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Technique Talk. Appreciate you guys tuning in. As you know, I'm Luke Thomas. And today we're going to go back to the world of exercise or sport science. I am a big supporter of the work of a guy who goes by the name of Dr. Mike Isratel. He is a guru, uh, has a PhD. I use the word guru in a, in a loose sense of the word, but essentially is a uh, very esteemed member of the powerlifting community and has done tremendous work both for the layperson and beyond about programming, nutrition, and everything in between. And he shouted out Bo Sandoval. Bo Sandoval, it turns out, is the director of strength and conditioning at the UFC Performance Institute. So I, I looked into Bo, and the more I learned about him, the more impressed I became. And I thought maybe he'd be a great candidate to have for this series. We spoke for nearly 45 minutes, and it might be one of my favorite episodes ever. Now, there is some jargon he gets into. If you are listening to the audio component, I do recommend you go and check out the written version so you can see some of the links that are included, some of the videos that help explain what's being said. Conversely, if you're uh, reading only, you would probably be hearing this by now, but I'm just saying, doesn't matter which way you get to uh, this edition of Technique Talk, try to get it on both mediums, both writing um, and in audio form. We discuss what I would consider to be the pillars of sport science, exercise science, and performance, really, as it relates to mixed martial arts. That includes everything you already know and some things that you might not. Uh, it is a highly, highly illuminating conversation. Uh, Bo has a tremendous amount of insight. So without further ado, here's Bo Sandoval. All right, I'm joined now by the Director of Strength and Conditioning at the UFC Performance Institute. Bo Sandoval is here. Bo, thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Luke. I appreciate you having me. All right, Bo, let's take a step back and sort of tell the audience who you are. Um, we mentioned your title, but what is your background in strength and conditioning? Sure, yeah. Um, I got into strength and conditioning uh, as far as my education back in 2000 and uh, did my undergraduate and graduate degrees both in exercise science, exercise physiology, and uh, I worked in, in and out of the collegiate ranks for a while, small Presbyterian school to start out with in Jackson, Mississippi, which I think was probably one of the better educational pieces in my career. 330 athletes all by myself at 24 years old. So pretty much lived in the, in the, in the training facilities day and night, uh, seven days a week. And then eventually moved up and got a, uh, a position with the United States Olympic Committee working primarily in acrobat and combat sports. And during that time, my interactions with men's freestyle and men's greco running wrestling, as well as women's freestyle and men's and women's judo kind of played a role in my development as an S&C coach in combat sports. Um, also, my interactions with USA Boxing at the time as well. So um, that particularly when it comes to getting gaining experience in not only just a combat sport, but weight cutting sports and things that are centered around a specific weight class and strategizing training around um, making weight for those weight classes and the different structures of when they weigh in, how far out they weigh in um, that, that gets into a little, into some different intricacies of training and preparation. Um and then, of course, just the different mentalities with, with combat sports. So after that, I spent the next nine years at the University of Michigan uh, building out their 
strength and conditioning department uh, for their 32 Olympic sport programs that they had there. Um, the program we were pretty proud of was not only developing the services, building out the services for the athletes that we were working with, but also um, growing a staff from a staff of four to a staff of 11 by the time that I left and working across four different facilities and a couple of those facilities being pretty world-class that we had developed um, during the time. So another great uh, educational chunk uh, in my career and then had an opportunity to jump back in and help athletes in the combat sports world, which I was a little fascinated by um, and jumped on with the the UFC about a year ago as we opened the doors for the the Performance Institute back uh, last May. When you say you're fascinated by it, is it because of the challenges and rigors of the job, or or is there another component? I think it's uh, some of it's the challenges for sure. I've always been, I've always had a high affinity with individualized sports. I, I had a great time for years working in track and field. Um, it's the it's the culmination of training and preparation and the mental fortitude. That at the end of the day, you got to step on the line. Your coaches can't do you do it for you. You don't have a whole you know, offensive package or defensive package of, you know, defensive backs and linemen or, you know, a point guard, a center, a couple forwards helping you through it. It's just you. That's it. You line up and you compete against the other person and you either execute or you don't. And so this adds a whole nother, you know, aspect to that with now um, it being a full contact sport and someone's in your personal space, you're not just having to execute, but you're having to respond to their execution and adapt and flow, not to mention in a time frame that's highly demanding as well. Um, five minutes, five minutes at a time, a minute, you know, rest in between that, that adds to, to the stress level quite a bit. So that's, uh, that's about as raw and about as primal of a sport as you can get to. We, we love it. It's, it's the funnest thing I've ever been around. Let's start this issue in the following way, which is to say, Imagine the word fitness, if I, de- if I defined it in the, as the ability or the capacity to do the work at a high level, right? So if I said, what would, what would football fitness be? It'd probably be a lot of things. In particular, it would be dependent on the position. Alignment is not going to have sure. the same fitness needs as a quarterback, but force production, speed, agility, those kinds of things. So then let's rotate the question back to MMA. What is MMA fitness in your mind? So back to your original definition of executing skills at a very high level, um, when you add amplitude and fortitude to the defensive and offensive maneuvers, uh, as well as on demand. So these guys don't really get to decide when to execute all the time. That's only on the offensive side. Um, there's a reactionary component. And so focus and in, in, in the reactionary ability to execute under extreme levels of fatigue um, and to be able to do that repeatedly in a continuous fashion for five minutes. That, that is uh, a very diverse definition, but 100% accurate in terms of just how demanding it can be on your, not only your, your physical capabilities, but your resiliency and your mental fortitude. Um, I mean, football, the average plays four to six seconds. So then you've got roughly 40 seconds to regather your thoughts, figure out what just went wrong in the last play, fix it for the next play. You got 10 teammates standing around you to give you feedback on it. Uh, this, you know, as soon as you get hit, you're, you're evaluating as you're slipping the next punch. 
um, or as you're defending, you know, a takedown and, and your back's getting raked up against the cage. So it, it is a, uh, the level of fitness um, has to be accommodating to where you can continue to process information and still continue to physically react to what's going on around you. Um, so that's the non-physiological side. It is a, it is a gambit of, um, of anaerobic fitness and anaerobic qualities. When you look at the power outputs and the things that are required for strong finishes and entertaining finishes that we see in the sport, but then on the flip side, um, the resiliency of uh, glycolytic and aerobic energy systems to be able to repeat those efforts over and over again. But then also those, those aren't just fueling systems. Those systems are what allow us to recover in between, whether they're bouncing on the balls of their feet when, you know, in between scrambles or they're actually sitting on the stool uh, in between rounds. So it's, uh, it is very much a decathlon of combat sports with so many skills involved, the multitude of energy systems that they're going to tap into, um, which makes it a very complex system to prepare for. Um, it's complex for a couple different reasons. One, you need to be able to evaluate it all. And that's a, that's a whole nother ball of wax. You know, for a hundred meter sprinter, we're evaluating a couple of things that will filter into them being a good hundred meter sprinter. Uh, and on the other end for the marathoner, we're evaluating a few things to, to, that would allow them to work efficiently in that space or that energy system. With these guys, they kind of need a little bit of all of it. That's where that kind of decathlon mentality comes in. Um, so while yes, you'll have your one or two events that are your bread and butter, you know, you got a primary wrestler, a primary kickboxer, you still have to be fairly uh, skilled, especially at this level in those other aspects, or you'll just simply drown in those areas. Um, and so, you know, these guys, they know their matchups as soon as they're, they're squared up with someone and that starts to formulate a game plan, uh, around how they're going to wear someone down or how they're going to drag someone in the deep water, trying to exploit a skill that, that they're not as good at. Um, so fitness is a, it, yeah, it's pretty tough to come up with a simplistic definition in this game but it is 100% one of those, those do or die traits. You'll, you'll either be successful because you have it, or you're going to struggle with success if you don't have it. I was wondering if you could briefly comment on one thing you raised earlier. <clears throat> I do see a lot of training that centers around, you'll see a series of uh, lights that go on and the athlete has to touch it in a sort of non-random succession to, to uh, you know, gauge ostensibly their ability to make quick reactions. But really what you're talking about in terms of the ability to process information is under stress and fatigue, that's when decision-making becomes difficult. So I'm wondering, to what extent is decision-making a function of physical health? And to, to what extent can decision-making be trained independently of one's, let's say, aerobic or anaerobic capacities? Yeah, so it's kind of twofold. you got to have fight IQ. You have to have awareness of the octagon, the space that you're in space that you don't want to be in the space that you want your opponent in, you know, that that's all fight IQ stuff. Um, but then you have to have the capacity that when your brain says, this is where I need to be, you're to, you have to actually get your body to put you there. Um, that, that's two different things. Then when it comes to the tactical side, then you have to have the skill set to actually be able to manipulate your opponent to get into that dominant top position or side control position or the dominant position in the clinch up against the cage. So you have the processing side. I know where I'm supposed to be, but now I have to have the physical component of actually getting there. Um, then if it's a tied up situation where you're in the clinch, now I've got to 
not only use technique and decision-making to get there, but I've got to be able to manipulate my opponent who uh, in their own right mind doesn't want to go there. They don't, they don't want to be there. They're putting up resistance. Um, so as far as reactionary gameplay that we can do on the physical side, it's just like low level skill acquisition as well. You know, before you learn how to throw that spinning heel kick, they're going to rehearse that in practice over and over again in the air first, then eventually on a bag, then eventually on a moving target, then eventually on uh, a human target. And so, um, without, you know, when it, when it comes to reactionary drills, whether you're using tennis balls or lights or whatever the case is, that's the fundamental way to learn to move correctly and to, and to respond to an external stimulus. Then that would need to eventually get carried into something where, uh, it gets a little bit more advanced where you are dealing with fatigue or you are dealing with someone trying to knock your head off. Um, cause that light is not going to throw a counter left hook at you. It's just going to blink the next light. So that's a rudimentary way to get into it. And there's some good literature behind, um, you know, getting someone to rehearse reaction and rehearse quality movement during reactionary drills and process information during reactionary drills. Um, you know, it's, they're good exercises. The other nice thing is they're good low impact exercises for times when maybe a fighter doesn't need to be physically stressed, but we do need to stimulate them a little bit. It can be an option. It just has to fit into the overall training plan. And it also has to fit into what's being prioritized for that fighter's preparation. So the next question I have would be is how do, how do I ask this? How do, how do you approach programming? Because going back to the original notion of fitness, <laughs> right? A flyweight fitness yeah. is different than heavyweight fitness. And even beyond that, if you think about just the strength world, that's the only kind of world I have an understanding of programming, even on a basic level. Even then, mm-hmm. athlete to athlete, cycle to cycle, mi- micro to mezzo, everybody's programming to do it correctly has to be really individualized and and tailored. And yet you have to deal with athletes who have different backgrounds, different capacities, athletically, technically. So what is your role in figuring out what programming should be? And what are the challenges there? Sure. Yeah. My role is extremely supplemental. Um, You know, the more disciplines there are in a sport, the more supplemental SNC is going to become. So back to my, my analogy of a decathlete, you know, when there's more events, there's more skills to learn. Uh, a lot of the physical training there, you know, there's only so much water you can fit in the bucket and then eventually it starts to overflow. So it, with, with these guys, it's the same way. It's got to kind of make sense with all the skill acquisition. When you have someone that's higher up the chain in terms of skill development, you can afford a little bit more time to spend on some other things. And so the other, the other side of that, a caveat is that, as a strength and conditioning professional, you have to understand too, that they are going to gain some fitness from kickboxing. They are going to gain some strength from wrestling and repeated takedowns and repeated pickups. Um, you know, there, that is resistance training. Our body doesn't know the difference. If you're touching a barbell or if you're picking up a person, it just knows there's a resistance. So I'm going to recruit uh, motor units to handle that resistance. Um, and so that's kind of my synopsis first off that that we're just super supplemental to the big picture of what's going on now to be influential in that supplemental role it first has to start with assessment we need to know so when we talk about individualization there is no individualization until you have individual assessments on what their attributes are so we have to be able to look at things like an energy system breakdown what is their you know vo2 max tells us how big their engine is 
but then we look at the thresholds within the VO2 max, uh, ventilative threshold one, you know, and ventilative threshold two tell us about um, where their body starts to accumulate lactic acid and how, how efficiently they can buffer it. And then where they hit the point where they can no longer buffer lactic acid um, and they kind of go over a cliff there and, and lose all anaerobic power, you know, understanding where those thresholds are, they're very unique person to person it's like a fingerprint mine's going to look very different from the one standing next to me um and so same thing with strength and power profiling when we look at rate of force development reactive strength and how quickly their body can respond you know eccentrically and concentrically um to different external forces that that's all it's like a fingerprint so the nice thing about the the performance institute is that we have the ability um to measure objectively a lot of these things in a super convenient fashion. Most of the time we build it right into training as well. Um, and so when we have this individual profile of these physical attributes that an athlete has, it just takes a lot of the guesswork out. So now I can get super specific with someone in terms of identifying weaknesses, starting to identify and formulate objectives, things where we can paint a clear direction. Look, if we go through and we, 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 have a plan directly focused around this one attribute, we can, we can make improvements to this. And then that can allow you to become a better athlete and perhaps be, a, have a better engine to focus on your skill work when you are sparring or when you are striking or when you are hitting pads or wrestling or whatever the case may be. But, um, it is depending on the physical attribute, it can be a much more long-term process. Some of these guys fight four times a year. Some of these guys fight six times a year. And a lot of those physical attributes, we have to find gaps of time in between training camps to really make a dent in, in true performance enhancement. Whereas when they're in camp, there's some refinement that we can do. Um, we can refine their, if they've got a good base level of fitness, we can refine that fitness and start to culture and, and tailor it to, a three, five minute round fight that's coming up, you know, eight or nine weeks away. But if they've got a, you know, if their base level of fitness is subpar and we're going into this camp, we're already kind of behind the eight ball. We're already limited because the rigors of camp are going to diminish the, the amount of improvement that we can make. But if we've already got pretty solid base levels in certain areas, we can refine. And in some cases, you know, in, in a very marginal manner, uh, uh, enhance some of their qualities during that time frame. So as much time as we spend around trying to quali in a quality fashion, improve how they're managing energy and recovery time during, um, during fight camp so that they can show up at the fight rested and ready to go and rejuvenated and, and with high energy. Um, we also spend a lot of time educating on just how influential the off camp period can be and how much more of a physical influence we can have during that off camp period. So I'm running off on a little bit of a tangent, but as far as programming, number one starts with assessment. We need to know exactly who the human being is sitting in front of us and what their physical attributes are. Then from that assessment, we start to have to formulate or not formulate, but we have to gather the layout of what training looks like for them. We've had over 270 fighters through our facility in, in, our, in our league through this facility since we've been open. And I cannot tell you two camps that looked exactly alike, even two fighters that are coming from the same training facility, whose camps don't look alike because they all have different strengths. They all have different weaknesses. Some spend X amount of time on grappling and X amount of time on striking the guy next to him is flip flop. So it, it's, uh, it's very different. We have some that spar once a week. We have some that spar three times a week. 
we have some that don't spar once they hit you know five weeks out from a fight they don't spar at all the rest of the time we have others that spar all the way up until two weeks out from the fight so just such a diverse group you can it'd be really difficult to argue how you could truly individualize and formulate a progressive plan without having some very individual assessment on them first and then that assessment leads into a planning process which you've got to have an understanding of what does the day-to-day training look like before i can prescribe work first thing we need to make sure is are they fueled for the work because when we when we make um adaptations we don't actually make adaptations in the weight room. All we do is supply a stimulus. So we'll, we'll supply a stimulus in the weight room. We'll supply a stimulus when we're, when we're conditioning. They supply a stimulus when they're in the octagon, when they're training. But there's no adaptation there. The adaptation doesn't occur until you recover and fuel. So when you're, when you're fueling, we, have, we, we talk about, like, you know, these guys taking pre-workouts and things like that. Pre-workout fueling actually starts, like, the day before. That starts weeks before, you know. So these guys have to understand like how to kind of almost be a normal human being first before you can be a high performance athlete. So when it comes to fueling and recovery, that's what allows me to actually create some performance enhancement. And I would echo the same thing to an MMA coach is if you really want that guy to get better at this skill that you're drilling hundreds of times a day over and over and over again, if he's not fueled for it and he's not rested to do it, none of it's going to stick. He might be able to labor through it, but there's no retention of that trait. There's no adaptation. Um, so that, that's where we have to really kind of help bridge the gap between stimulus and adaptation. And so for me, when I, as soon as I see a plan, the first thing we try to identify, all right, where are the opportunities for recovery? Where's the opportunities for fueling and rest? If those are met and if those are, you know, or if those are there, then it's easy to plug and play. Okay, this is a good opportunity to do some anaerobic training this is a good opportunity to do some aerobic training this is a good opportunity to work on rate of force development and peak power output um and then in some cases we see a plan as kind of a mosh podge we do our best to really integrate with the team and work around okay how can we make this a little more efficient to where there's better uh opportunities for recovery and regeneration um and so that that's in terms of program design it really boils down to how we're managing energy first. And then if we're doing a good job of managing energy, now we can get into the intricacies of peak power and peak speed and peak uh, endurance and all these other things that we want to culminate through camp. So that happens at different levels. Some of these fighters have their shit together and it's easy to kind of get in and, and dive into that plan uh, and get really, prog- really progressive at an advanced level. And some of them, some of them are not there yet. Some of them are still doing, uh, their number one priority is still, you know, super high skill acquisition because maybe they, you know, we we have some fighters that have uh, drawn some attention to themselves. Maybe they've gone five and zero as a pro in a smaller league, and then they get a shot at the UFC, and you know, they're coming in with, you know, eight pro fights or something. While we have others that come to this league that have thirty pro fights, so uh, their skill acquisition and their their gym IQ, their fight IQ is going to be very different, and that kind of dictates how much energy we have left to actually spend on strength and conditioning or on, you know, physical therapy or rehab for that matter. Um, so it is a very intricate process, but that's why for us, it is dire that we, we don't have just a strength coach. We don't have just a MMA coach. We have a performance team built around these guys so that we can plug all of the, you know, their gaps look different. Every fighter's gaps look different. So some may have more of a nutrition gap. Well, we plug someone in, an expert in that field, to help fill that gap. 
some some of them have they have great extra strength and conditioning coaches that they've contacted out and they've hired. They don't have as much of a gap there. So, you know, I'll help facilitate or I'll help coordinate things, but they may not I may not have as much of a presence. So depending on where those gaps lie, that kind of helps decide which part of our team kind of takes a lead in integrating the PI into that fighter's prep time. There's a lot to unpack there, but let me go in this direction. <laughs> I mean, I could talk to you for hours about this, but in the interest of time, let's go in, a, in sure. the direction that you made. So we're talking about recovery science. How would you define recovery science to the layperson? And relative to, let's say, and again, I'm going to lean on this just because it's something I know a little bit about, let's say strength science, right? How advanced in the field is recovery science relative to the other sciences about uh, athletic performance? It's still fairly new. Um, you know, in the last, like, I'd say 15 years, there's been a lot of, a lot of uh, study and a lot of case study around, you know, appropriate methodologies, but then also appropriate timeframes and situations for different methods of recovery. Um, the two most fundamental things, first off, are nutrition and sleep, first, hands down. So, we don't even get into advanced methods of recovery if someone fundamentally doesn't check those two boxes. All right. You don't eat breakfast every day. There's no point. Let's not even, we don't even get in, need to get into the discussion of a cryo chamber or, you know, a, a, um, uh, an infrared, you know, laser light bed. We don't even need to get into that conversation if you don't eat food and if you don't go to bed. So, and unfortunately we do, we have some of these fighters that have a hard time sleeping, you know, whether it's anxiety related or um, they've just never developed good habits, you know, growing up or, or whatever. But those two things fundamentally first, that's recovery, number one. Then you have someone that fundamentally, fundamentally does those things well, and they're truly in kind of a high performance plan between practices and training and, and everything else around. Now we can strategize how we're creating a balance between their sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems to actually uh, develop uh, a regimen of recovery opportunities. Uh, you know, one of our, our, our head of sports science refers to it as, as uh, windows of trainability. So if you're recovered and if you've truly regenerated, you now have a certain window of trainability. And if you haven't, then there's a smaller window. So how much stuff you can fit in there is, is very different. And so, you know, monitoring, there's different tech pieces and things to be able to monitor that sort of thing. Um, but even still, you know, we at, we're fortunate. We have at our disposal the ability to measure a lot of these things. But you still have, there still have to be educational interventions around, okay, now here's how you employ this information, and here's how we're going to make adjustments. Sometimes it's athlete-driven. We need to make adjustments to what you're doing outside of training time, outside of, you know, whatever. And then we have – you know, we have to have coaching conversations. Okay, look, you know, the way you have this regiment set up, there's no window of opportunity for recovery. All the things you have in here are fantastic. They're great. They're just in the wrong places. Some of them are at the wrong times, some are the wrong this, wrong that. And, you know, let's be real. The reality of it is these, a lot of these systems that we have and a lot of these training regimens, these MMA classes and the pro practices and things like they're set up around a business. So they're, they're set up around – where can I get the most pros on the mat at the right time and try to accommodate everyone as best as possible. And uh, so those aren't, you know, those aren't super individual tactics when everyone has to show up at practice at three o'clock or two o'clock or whatever. 
Um, whereas that may not be the best window for that particular person. So we find other ways to manipulate schedules, move things around um, so that there's adequate windows for rest, adequate windows for food, adequate windows for things like getting in a cryo chamber or using Normatec pants and, and or doing, you know, massage flushes or, or whatever the case is. Um, so that boils, that really turns back to the planning process and to the periodizing of training which still there are some camps that do it really well. They do, they do put a lot of thought into planning and structuring training so that they can get really high intensity work, quality work in, but also windows of opportunity to recover from it. And then there's some that don't, there's some that it's like a race. It's an eight week race where they're just trying to cram as much stuff as they can in, uh, in eight weeks and then rest them up the last week, which really isn't rest. They're cutting weight. And so uh that in their eyes that's how they think about it though okay that eighth week you know fight week we'll just we'll back up and we won't be sparring that week we're not going to wrestle as hard we'll drill a little bit we'll hit some mitts we'll do open workouts for the fans and and that's it but um that's really not recovery time if a guy's cutting weight now for those that are fortunate enough to don't have to cut that much sure they're going to get some rest um but that's where you know techniques around peaking and tapering kind of have to be employed during that last three-ish you know 14 to 21 days out from a fight um roughly three weeks but it, it it varies so much weight class to weight class it varies depending on uh you know male female a little bit it varies depending on age not only their their not only their own you know age but their training age how long they've been in the sport you know we have some that just jumped over from playing you know football in the nfl or or you know, college football, or we have some that were, we have a couple, we have a female who's a all conference, you know, heptathlete in college who, um, you know, they, they're all so different. Um, you kind of have to find that recipe as you go through the process, the best recipe for each one. So these coaches are going through the same process, trying to figure out exactly what works for these athletes, just like we do. They do it in a much more field based nature, whereas we have some of the abilities to get more objective diagnostics around them. And we're working to try to build uh, more of a bridge between these fight teams so that they can use us as a resource, um, not to necessarily go around dictating how fighters train in every camp, but so that qualified professionals in those camp can use our resources so they can better prep their athletes for the events that we host. So you mentioned that weight cuts were not rest, which I think intuitively makes sense, but I'd like you to dig into that mm -hmm. if you can, because it is a component of recovery science, sure. right? Because they're in that, right. they're in that deload week, whatever you want to call it, where they're trying sure. to uh, bring us some alleviation from the fight week. So why would you call it not rest? Like, give me the argument. Is it because it's putting strain on the body? What's the idea there? So back to just fundamental recovery. If you're going to recover, you have to eat, you have to sleep. So number one, they're not eating or they're eating at a reduced amount. And by that point, when they're cutting weight, the, the deficit is pretty high. So their caloric deficit, whatever they started with and progressed down through camp, it's going to be at its highest during fight week. So they're not getting much. So there's, so from a cellular level, recovering damaged tissue, whether it's muscle tissue or whatever, that's not happening at a very fast rate. Then on top of that, um, particularly the actual weight cut night, the night before weigh-ins. Um, it's not hard to find the information. All the, you know, all the, uh, 
the nutrition gurus that are out there doing meal prep stuff and all the fight, you know, fight week stuff around supplying meals and things. They're not shy about it. They tell you, I stayed the night with them. I stayed with them all night. We cut weight all night long. So you're not sleeping. So now the food parts out, the sleep parts out, there's no recovery. You're doing less work. Yes. But you're, there's no recovery from the work you've done weeks before the week prior, even the week prior. Um, so fatigue accumulates throughout camp, even as they're, even if they're doing a good job recovering day by day so that they can regenerate for another hard training day, you know, towards the end of the week, it still accumulates into the next week and into the next week. Um, and so in order to keep up with that pace, you've got to be fueled. You've got to be rested um, consistently over time. It can't be inconsistent throughout the week. And then if you're going to handle that cut one, that cut's got to be marginal enough to where you can do as little cutting as possible. You can do as little caloric deficit as possible. Um, and you cut into your sleep as little as possible. Um, but if you're in one of those scenarios where you're behind the eight ball and you've got to do it the hard way and you've got to cut 12% and you've got to, uh, stay up through the night, you know, the, what the night of, of, uh, the night before weigh-ins, then by no means are you, you know, can you make weight and still fight? Yes, absolutely. Which is the number one, you got to get there first before you have a chance to compete, but to say that they're well rested when you do it, absolutely not. How uh, knowledgeable is the average fighter about notions of rest, even basics? I mean, you mentioned that some people have sleep because they have anxiety or sleep issues, rather, because they have anxiety. Sure. The only thing I've ever seen gym to gym, and even this is not so much universal, was just water hydration was seen as you know universally important and recognized. Beyond that, though, I don't know how how much of this is common knowledge or um, uh, even, coach, even among coaching staff. Yeah, so I, for one, they're really knowledgeable about knowing, like, it's, it's, most of the time they'll tell you, like, yeah, I don't think I get enough sleep. What I don't think they're knowledgeable about is just how um, influential that is in a negative way over what they're trying to do to, to be a professional athlete. I don't think they understand the magnitude of how much that negatively affects them when uh, when they aren't either supplying the right amount of nutrition or getting the right amount of rest um, because they, they know that they've gotten to this point, which this is the premier league. This is the elite league. Um, and what they've done up to this point has worked, but I don't know that they're always uh, in a mindset thinking about longevity. Like I want to fight professionally for the next 10 years or, or whatever. I think they're, they're worried about making it to the next fight and then the next contract and then the next fight of that contract. Um, and then if you start to get within striking reach, maybe then they start to get concerned about, you know, being a contender for a belt and things like that. But, um, so I think they understand the deficit. They know that there's a deficit. I just don't think they always get just the, the magnitude of how negatively influential that deficit can be over their performance because they've powered through it before, or they've mentally, you know, pushed themselves through it before. And don't get me wrong, we we would be the last ones. We don't want to tap into – we don't negatively want to influence any of that mental fortitude. We want them to maintain that kind of mental fortitude. But at the same time, we want them to treat their bodies like a high-performance engine. You know, you're not going to buy a Ferrari and stick regular unloaded fuel in it. You're going to you're going to go try to find some rocket fuel to pump that thing in so you can run it like it was built to be run. Um, and so sometimes I don't I don't just don't think they have a uh, a clear understanding of just how um, how much nutrition or 
sleep deprivation can play in terms of their their performance because they have performed very well on on both a subpar diet and subpar sleeping patterns. You mentioned uh, one last thing I want to sort of talk about, and I really appreciate your time this evening, is the nutrition aspect, because it's really interesting. Maybe if you're a heavyweight, this is less of a consideration, but as you noted, if you're in a caloric deficit, this will impact your recovery, but a lot of these guys, for long periods of time, are operating under caloric deficits, not merely that last week, just to maintain within the weight class. So if I had to ask you what is proper nutrition for a fighter, what would you say? So, number one, I'm not an expert in nutrition, so make sure everyone knows that. But I do have colleagues that are that are very, uh, very much so experts in that field. And there are systems that they employ, that they go to when it comes to a systematic progression of the, of the reduction of caloric intake day by day. And they're, uh, but they're, they're finding what these what these appropriate deficits are through assessment first, you know, what is their resting metabolic rate? What's their metabolic rate at moderate levels of, of intensity? What's their metabolic rate at a maximal level of intensity? And once they have that spectrum, then they can start to build fueling plans around training sessions, around um, uh, S and C sessions, MMA sessions, based on what the intensity level is of the work that they're doing. And so once you kind of know what that supply demand is, what that caloric demand is to do that amount of work, then you start to identify, okay, what's, what's the reduction that we can go through now to cause weight loss um, versus diving into kind of a template cookie cutter program that tells you, all right, you normally take in 2,500 calories. Now you're going to take in 1,400. That deficit may be too big to start with for some people. Um, whereas these guys have a much more progressive approach to creating that deficit over time. And most of the time, even when the deficit is appropriate and some of these guys are still having trouble, it's really a, um, it's a misfire on the correct macronutrients that they're cutting from. So that you got to, to create that deficit, you got to pull from one of your three macronutrients. You've either got to do it through protein, fats, carbohydrates. And most of the time it's the wrong ones at the wrong time. So a lot of our um, our uh, sports dietetic team here they're they're spending time just trying to reconfigure um, which macros they're cutting from so that they can still be fueled for practice, but you're still going through your caloric deficit. Um, and so that that's that's a very unique from everybody. Everybody metabolizes in uh, macronutrients differently, and we're finding this through some of our testing that we do here. Um, they, they metabolize fats and they metabolize carbohydrates at different levels of intensity. And that's something that we can actually measure here and identify. And then once you see that, you know if someone's primarily a fat burner or if they're primarily a carbohydrate burner. And once we know that, now if we're going to employ a diet around that, that, that gives us some specific parameters to, to build that diet around. Even from a, as a strength and conditioning professional, if I know that they're primarily a fat burner, primarily, primarily a carbohydrate burner, that helps me with identifying specific levels of intensity that we need to hit if we're doing low-impact cardio for cutting weight. Because if you're trying to cut weight and you're training at intensity that's too high, you're going to tap into the wrong substrate. And then you spend however many hours on the treadmill at the wrong intensity and you're not losing any weight. They can't figure it out. And vice versa. If you train at too low of an intensity and you're not into the right substrate, you're basically just spending time on a treadmill. Um, and that energy could be spent learning how to, you know, shoot a double leg or how to pressure somebody on top or, you know, more skill acquisition. 
So um, these are things that can be measured and these are things that can be drilled down. So that, that nutrition aspect, um, you know, the nutrition experts, it's a matter of a decision to get super individualized with someone, which would start with assessments first and then um, interventions around what they're currently doing through recalls or, or whatever, and then into a plan of action that's got to be consistent over time. But, you know, it also depends on, you know, these guys are at the mercy of whatever shape these fighters come into when they get announced for that next fight. Um, so if we're eight weeks out and the guy's, you know, 18% over his weighing weight, that, that's going to be a tough one. But if we're eight weeks out and someone comes in and they're 9% over their weighing weight, all right, that's manageable. We can, we can do something with that. Or if someone is, you know, if we're out of camp and there's no fight in the foreseeable future and we've got six weeks to do some metabolic rehab, and get them to understand how to eat like a normal human being again, we can kind of go through that educational process. Then they may actually be in a good position when it's time to start fight camp. And now we're eight weeks out and, and we can get them, we can use that pre-camp time frame to get them in a realistic um, percentage of body mass over their weigh-in weight so that we can actually have a successful camp. But I always start out with when, when people start wanting to talk, you know, fight camp formulation and how we're going to manage the fight camp you kind of have to know, you got to identify quickly, all right, are we, are we addressing performance enhancement during camp or are we just trying to make weight? Because you really can't do both at the same time. Because when you're at that much of a deficit week by week, performance enhancement becomes very difficult. Um, because, we, you know, again, if I'm going to supply a stimulus to increase strength and power, then you've got to be able to fuel the recovery for that stimulus. Well, if we're at a deficit because someone is 16% over their weigh-in weight, then you know we pretty much need to make the decision, okay, this is not going to be a performance-enhancing camp. This is going to be we need to make weight so that you can step inside the cage and make a living. So I could <laughs> talk about these things forever, but again, I want to sort of wrap this conversation, at least for now, sure. on, on a notion, sort of combining all of this together. What is, this is the basic question, but let me just articulate it if I may. What is the best real-world operational model for success for a fighter out there? In other words, if you're a UFC fighter, uh, you have access to your facility. But there are a lot of fighters who don't, or they may end up in the UFC, but they're not there now. How costly is it, number one, to just train appropriately, given all these considerations? And number two, you mentioned it and articulated it before. They might have this 3 p.m. practice just to get pros on the mat. But is that is that is just getting all the pros on the mat? Is that really the best way to do it, or is there another uh, model that they should uh, pursue if it's financially viable? So those two considerations. I'm wondering if you could speak about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be totally honest, we're 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 working on studying and evaluating to identify what that model looks like at the highest level. We, we're in a facility. We have access to world-class coaches that bring athletes through that use our facility, uh, world-class athletes. We have world-class technology centered uh, around those athletes, world-class practitioners in different disciplines of sport performance that, that integrate and work with those athletes and coaches. So we're using that platform to kind of generate what that model looks like at the highest level. And then just like any other sporting event, that model starts to trickle down and has to be manipulated based on means and resources as you go down to the different levels of, of, uh, of play. And so uh, to fighters out there doing it on their own that don't have as many resources, number one is prioritize recovery. 
prior, there's always going to be someone that wants to teach you the skills. You're, you're going to be able to find practitioners that can teach you the wrestling skills, the kickboxing skills, you know. So in the beginning, the simplest thing is allow yourself enough time to recover from that work and allow yourself enough time to eat around that work. Then as, you know, these guys work themselves through their careers, they start to add resources. So they start to add someone to help them manage food and nutritional intake. They start to add someone that, um, that uh, can manage strength and conditioning and supplemental, you know, supplemental strength work, supplemental endurance work. Um, but if they've already got the fundamentals around skills training and rest and recovery, to add those additional resources, it, it all starts to fit. When you don't have those fundamentals of skill acquisition and rest and recovery, and then you try to add all these other things in, that model is, is going to have a hard time surviving. It's you're shoving, you know, 15 pounds of poo into a 10 pound bag. It just doesn't doesn't fit. So you have to you have to know how to manage all those things before you get to that to that point. So. What that model looks like, yeah, I can tell you it looks very different level to level based on resources. At the highest level, you know, we're still working on trying to streamline that process. Um, and again, there's, it's not like we're streamlining one type of fight camp. We're trying to find recipes for several hundred different styles of camps. Um, and that, you know, in, in our eyes, it is a, it is a tough task. Um, but it's also, we feel like we're a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, it's a 25 year old sport. We're wrapping our head around high performance. Now, you know, it took, took professional baseball and football 75 years to figure out high performance. So we feel like we're doing all right.